0: The scripture reading for today comes from Luke 15, 1 through 10, uh, where Jesus shares the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, this fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous people who, who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one of them, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The word of the Lord.
1: Friends in Christ, grace and peace from God our Creator and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Start that way because that's the way most Lutherans start. Uh, it's really nice to be here, be here for this event, be here with you as a worshiping community and experience your life together. It's just good to be here. Um, I'm aware of the fact some of you may be sitting there um, looking at me and saying, didn't he get the memo about how we dress in this place? Um, I didn't get that memo, but I did see in your uh, on your website the announcement about uh, about tonight and about my coming, the bishop is coming, it said right across the headline of it, and, and, and went on to say, uh, for some of you, you might know what that means, but for others of you, if you have no idea what that means and think the only knowledge you have of the bishop is that chess piece that moves diagonally, you ought to come and see this. <laughs> so uh, apparently I'm sort of on display. Um, LAUGHTER Well, here's what I'm going to do. As Russell said in the announcements, what what we're really here for, Paul and I, are here because uh, though this worshiping community has been a community for some time, it's only been um, in the last couple of years that as that life unfolds, uh, you have unfolded in a path that has brought you closer in alignment with the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, although... Although that's not just a recent thing in the last two years. I was told shortly after I got here, eight years ago, that there have kind of been on-again, off-again conversations about some some sort of um, simpatico that exists between this community and the theology and practice of the Lutheran Church that has led to some kind of conversations along the way. So there isn't anything terribly surprising about all this. Uh, uh, but... Uh, now to mark the step of uh, Debbie Blue who by no question is well trained theologically and has been for some time but uh, as I'll say a little bit more about later on um, ha- has now taken this step of being a, of being um, rostered as a called pastor in the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America uh, we don't consider other pastors of other denominations either Russell or the host of pastors who serve other congregations to be somehow antithetical to the gospel. But still, we do take seriously what it means to be... I'll bet bet you're glad to hear that, huh? And maybe you're glad to have that assurance. I don't know. Anyway, um, so here's what I'm going to do in these next few minutes is... um, is weave weave several themes together that I think all kind of fit. And that is, um, I'm going to do what pastors do, which is I'm going to use as a takeoff point the lesson that was just read. I was told you as a a community, you follow the lectionary and you focus your reflections on that, which is what, after all, pastors are supposed to do. Uh, But by coincidence, or maybe divine guidance if your theology runs that way, uh, that lesson has some alignment with what we're doing, not only in, identif- in the acceptance and uh, putting onto the roster of this pastor, but also of our life together in a wider church body. Um, so it's going to all, with any luck at all, kind of weave together in these next few minutes. Let's start with uh, this lesson, the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin, If you are somebody who who was raised in the church and since you were a little kid went to Sunday school and all that, you know that this one is mainstream. Of all Jesus' parables, this one and a handful of others have been there since as early as you can remember and you've seen the little pictures of the shepherd going after the sheep and all of that Never mind uh, the discussion that happens out in Montana among sheep farmers who think this is really a cockamamie thing for someone to have done to leave 99 sheep unguarded and unfenced to go chasing after one. But it makes for a great story that's been part of our, our uh, tradition all along. And if you're not deeply rooted in the church, if you're kind of flitting around, kind of trying to figure out what, what all this is about then um, hear it now, tonight, that this parable you ought to pay attention to because this is really mainstream. This is kind of bedrock stuff. This te- and, and the reason is, it, this parable does, um, does something uh, that a lot of Jesus' parables do, but this one really does in spades, and that, one, and that is it makes a couple of marvelous points, kind of corollaries, but it, it tells us a couple things all at the same time in a very simple way. I'm not using this parable simply because the shepherd seeks the, shaw, uh, seeks the lost. We're ordaining a pastor, and her job is to seek the lost, so it's a nice lesson. It goes much deeper than that. Um, so it's, the, it's one of these stories where Jesus makes two points, one about himself and one about others. Here's what it says about him. Remember, uh, this part's easy to miss because you usually miss it in the little flannel graph or PowerPoint or whatever they do nowadays. Um, The context of the story ought not be missed. That in fact, there is some high tension um, conflict going on at this moment between the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the time, and this upstart teacher who's gathering quite a following, Jesus, and the religious leaders of the time, the Pharisees, have grumbled against Jesus, pointing out the fact, I suppose nowadays it means they'd be issuing a whole bunch of attack ads, but back then they just grumbled. They're grumbling about the fact that Jesus, who is purporting to be a fine religious teacher, spends so much time with sinners and tax collectors, unsavory people. They know, this is 15th chapter Luke by now, they know the kind of folks, the, the things he's been doing, the kind of people he hangs out with, going to the homes of prostitutes and women of ill repute, mixing it up with people without any social screen at all. And, uh, and the Pharisees, who know better, are grumbling. They're, attack- they're attacking, in essence, his credibility. And Jesus, in response... Uh, tells this simple story that makes it very clear that in his book and in the book of the God that he's here to proclaim and to reveal to us that the very heart of the God that we find in Jesus is a heart that seeks the lost and the broken and the marginalized and the wayward and whose immediate reflex action is to go after them and draw them in. That in fact, in contrast to the, to the image that the Pharisees had of what it is to be godly and upstanding, Jesus is saying what it is to be godly and upstanding is to move immediately to the broken and the painful, the poor, the, the wayward, the marginalized. That's where the heart of God moves. That's where Jesus' hearts moved. And, uh, and if we'd have been sitting there watching this exchange go on, and in tune with what was going on, we'd have known this was deeply offensive to the religious leaders who were challenging him. So that's one thing that's going on. Jesus is being very clear about who he is and who this God that he is revealing is, one for whom no barrier can separate, that God goes after all the broken, the wayward, the confused, whatever. That's who God goes after. But then the story goes for even more impact than that, And also, uh, as it's retold over the years, it becomes clear Jesus isn't just talking about himself. We who follow this God revealed in Jesus Christ, we become referred to as the body of Christ. That is God's continuing presence in the world, which means then this parable is also a story for us saying that if we are to be the body of Christ, it becomes our reflex action to move immediately to the world's pain, to the broken, the ostracized, the poor, the maimed, the lame, the, the shunted aside, the wayward, the sinful, you name it, that's what we do as God's people. That's what you do as a follower of Christ. That's what this faith community and every faith community ought to be about. That's what it is to in our life together as a church body as we seek to together be this body of Christ in the world so this fits you see for uh, our coming together to talk about uh, Debbie being a pastor in this church what is it that a pastor does or uh, or who we as church are together as you align with this thing called the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America what's it mean how is it that we're to be church together well let me make a quick short list first it means that this place, as every congregation, but let's start with this place, needs to be at its heart, a place where anyone who walks through the door carrying whatever brokenness, whatever pain, whatever alienation, whatever sense of failure and disappointment and shame, self-loathing, sinful past, whatever it is, anyone who comes in carrying anything, hears here clearly The message that the God that we understand to be alive and moving in the world is a God that loves us, claims us, finds immeasurable value in each one of us. And not only do we hear that spoken in the proclamation, but we live it as a community. So that anybody who walks into this door needs to feel accepted, no holds barred, no conditions thrown down. Now we as a, one of the things that, um, one of the things that it means to be a denomination is that we take great care in who it is that becomes the pastors of our churches, because this message of being saved by the grace of God without any of our condition, that this is what's been revealed to us in Jesus Christ, is so life-giving and so central and so important that the people who stand before us week after week, day after day, and proclaim that message need to be crystal clear that they understand how that message arises out of the scripture, the shared history of the people of God over time, uh, because there's so much riding on the clarity of that proclamation. We take great care in who it is that does that proclaiming. Now, you know, I suspect, most people in most congregations know, pastors do a lot more than just proclaim. Uh, you know, they sweep floors and serve coffee and draw up budgets and do lots of things that a lot of you do along with them, but that's not their primary job. Their primary job is the, is the, the task of preaching and teaching and forming you into a faith community that is, in fact, a faithful following of what the body of Christ has been called to be. That's why we take great care in what a pastor ought to be and what you as a congregation ought to be. But that's not enough. If you did that really well, if you were a place where the theology was great and the fellowship was great and the welcome of uh, strangers was great, that's still, good as it is, not enough because we aren't called as God's people to live in isolated private clubs with secret handshakes, living inside of walls, having no impact beyond ourselves. The New Testament makes clear the body of Christ is a single body. Many members, many expressions, many different ways of living it out, different places, but we are a single body, and so all through history... That notion of being church together has been lived out because of human frailties and our tendency to get into fights in denominations that never have been able to get it together all as one whole body of Christ around the world. Um, but we do understand that we're somehow to be together. So we are together in different ways. And thank goodness we live in an age today when there's more communication, more acceptance across lines than there has been ever any before. Well, the point is that our life together then is to do this same reflecting of the reflex action of the people of God to be a body of Christ in the world that moves out to the world. So that's what we do as church together. We have impact on this world, shine light and have impact far beyond what you as a single congregation could do or any one of the 10,000 congregations in the ELCA. You're one congregation in one place, but you're now a part of the church expressed in, as 112 congregations in this synod, nearly 10,000, over 10,000 in the whole ELCA, uh, and, and together we support work that stretches way beyond what we do. This synod, uh, just the east metro area, of, um, uh, has incredible impact in places like um, Tanzania and Guatemala where in synod-to-synod kind of relationships we build schools, we build hospitals, we build worship centers, we dig wells, we enliven uh, community life in those places in all kinds of ways. We do that together because there's that kind of power when we're acting together. We send, we do a whole, whole host of things. We send campus pastors to nine state universities, we support ELCA colleges, four of them in Minnesota and others around the country. We support the seminaries that produce leaders, we support ecumenical and public policy work so that we can have an impact as the people of God publicly that we could never have if we simply existed as little isolated uh, congregations. We support immigrant communities. I don't know if you saw um, One of the best plugs for Lutherans in recent years was in the movie Gran Torino. Did you see that? Where, where Clint Eastwood, crusty, angry at the world, Clint Eastwood is driving in a car with his uh, Hmong neighbor and he mutters, "What are you doing here? How'd you get here to Minnesota anyhow?" And the Hmong young woman riding in his car said, "Is the Lutherans." <laughs> uh, well, that is a part of the story of why Minnesota has uh, has experienced the kind of growth of immigrant communities because. It was uh, the first resettlements. for years and years have been church communities and Lutherans with their connections around the world have done this well. It's transformed the way we live as a state. The network of Lutheran, here's another tidbit you didn't know, uh, the network of Lutheran social service agencies, that is homes for the aged and residential treatment centers and and, uh, hospitals, social service agencies, a whole network of different kinds of agencies you take it all together as a, as a network of Lutheran agencies. It's the largest social service agency in the country. It's bigger than Catholic Charities, bigger than the American Red Cross. One in every 50 Americans has some contact and receives some services. I mean, that's part of what we do together. Is it, is it touching the lost, reaching for the hurts of society? Of course it is. In our public posture and our public policy work, And our ecumenical and interfaith work, we also begin to shape the kind of common life together. I'll give you one example because it just happened this past week. Probably missed most of your notice. Uh, But in the aftermath of the response to that pastor in Florida who had the hot idea with his huge congregation of 50 people that they were going to burn the Koran. And, of course, there was, properly so, outcry from all over There was a press conference at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C., carried on national television, where religious groups from all around the country had issued a statement saying, uh, uh, as Christians, uh, the statement simply made clear, we as Christians don't believe our theology calls us to do that, that we don't live with the neighbor by burning their sacred writings. We live with the neighbor by being what Christ would be, which is, loving and compassionate and welcoming without any conditions just as this parable teaches us uh, r- standing right but you wouldn't have seen this because you didn't know him but standing immediately behind the person who was on camera making this statement was former Bishop Don McCoyd, an ELCA bishop who is now the ecumenical officer for our whole church Mark Hansen's right hand Uh, who helped craft that statement, who is a part of the glue of denominations and interfaith groups standing together and making a public policy. If the body of Christ only exists separated in isolated points, that kind of thing doesn't happen. By being together and having a common life in the body of Christ, we do. Well, together we launch new congregations, we send people to... uh, 50 countries overseas. Just this afternoon, Paul and I were a part of the launch of a new Hmong ministry on the east side of St. Paul. I could go on and on, you can see. You wind me up and this guy gets gone, so I'll stop. But here's the point. If this parable is saying to us that the God that we see revealed to us in Jesus Christ is a God who calls us to come close to the presence of a forgiving God and to be that presence of a forgiving God in the world, then we have a calling not only to be welcoming communities every time we gather, but to be a welcoming community, a sign of light and hope to the whole world in our life together. That's what we're about today. I'm as tickled as I can be that you as a congregation are seeing your way to becoming more and more a part of this common life that we share. Pleased as can be that Debbie Blue adds her gifts as a pastor to the life of this church life that we share. I'm thankful for this day and for all of you. Amen.